All right, uh, new series. This is week two of Israel the Man, Israel the Nation. So it's in the news. It's actually 100 days today since the Hamas attack. And we're the type of church that supports Israel. I'm not saying that we support them when they do bad things, but we support the nation of Israel because Israel is God's chosen people. And we are grafted into God's chosen people. And so it is vital that we keep them in our prayers. The Word of God says that we must pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so we've been making that a practice every Sunday is praying for the, the peace of Jerusalem. And so the Lord prompted me to do this series because I'm asking you to pray for a nation, and you might be thinking to yourself, why? Why, why do we pray for a nation? Where did, why, why is Israel so important? I mean, we know it's in the Bible, um, but why pray for the modern state of Israel? The modern state. It's a, it's a relatively new nation. Uh, May 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. This was a miracle. If you're a history nerd, or if you're not, just trust me. Like, this is a historical miracle. There's no way that this should have happened, but it did. Why? Because this is God's plans, God's chosen people. The interesting thing, maybe the, probably one of the reasons why the United States is one of Israel's biggest supporters is because from the very beginning, Harry Truman was the very first leader to recognize Israel, and he did it the same day. This very same day that, that they pulled off this incredible miracle, um, our president then said, America, who was founded on biblical principles, is going to recognize the nation of Israel. And from then on, almost all world nations are recognizing the nation of Israel as, as a country, as a people group, with the exception of 13 other countries. And those are, of course, Muslim countries. And it, for them to get to this point where... There was no nation. Of course, it was called Palestine. It was, oh, how deep do you guys want to go? I can't, we'll be here all day if I start talking history, and then, uh, and then I'm going to put you to sleep. I'll probably put myself to sleep. Um, but it, it was a huge miracle, and there was a, there was a void in the land when, Israel, when, the, when God's people returned to the land. That's the point I want to make, because they were scattered all over the world. And so when the Zionists, when they had this dream to return to their promised land, to the Holy Land, there was a drawing of the Jewish people from all over the world to return to their land. And, okay, for them to pull off this political miracle was one thing. The second miracle was when everybody began to return. When they, when they in essence, when they came home. There we're talking European Jews, Arab Jews, Eastern Jews, Jews that lived in Africa. They all began just to come back. Like there was, 
there was maybe a, a call, but there was more of like a homing beacon saying that, 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 that it was lit off and it started to attract God's people back to their land. That was another huge miracle. And they began to work the land. They began to develop the land. They took parts that were desert. They took parts that were swamps. Now they're taking parts that, uh, that are salt water and they're making it fresh water. They made the land prosperous. The nation of Israel is a very prosperous nation. They're, very, they're successful. How many people use Waze? You know, the little app that gets you from point A to point B? That's an that's a Israeli technology. They actually, I think they still own that company. I'm not sure. You and I, whether we realize it or not, we have been blessed by this nation. We've been blessed by the people of God. And that is one of the promises in the book, is that it's the Abrahamic promise. God reveals himself to Abraham. He begins to give him a dream, gives him a vision, opens up his eyes to see the stars and then the, the sand under his feet. And he says to Abraham, makes this covenant with him. He says, he says your offspring will be a blessing to the entire world. And we're, we're living under that blessing now. And so this, this is one reason why we pray for Israel. It was a miracle that they were established. It was a miracle that people were drawn to the land. It was a miracle that they took a desert and a swamp and they made it a paradise. And it was a miracle that they defended it. They had to... They, they were and still are surrounded by enemies on all sides. And right out of the gate, they fought some wars to, for the protection of, of their land that God gave them. I don't want to get into all the other politics and all the other stuff, but it is their land. They're one of, they're the, old, one of the oldest uh, ethnicities on the planet, the oldest people group. The, the Syrians are close, but I, it's, it's amazing that the Hebrew people still have an identity it's one of the oldest, it is the oldest in the world. The Bible in and of itself is an incredible miracle. It's, just, it's fascinating. But they had, to, they had to establish the land, they had to develop the land, they had to get to the land, and then they had to fight for the land. They had to, they had to strive to make sure that God's promises were fulfilled and established and safe. They had to fight for that land. And there were some miracle battles. They're still fighting today, as you know. Just, and I'm not saying that, that the Israel government makes the best decisions all the time, regardless. We're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem that it is established. Now, why are, the, why are these things important? Well, it's actually a part of the name. Do you know, actually know what the name Israel means? So whenever you're reading your scriptures and you see um, like is, so just think about is and then Rael. The L part is important. And you're going to see this when you read your Bibles. Uh, usually it's, there's some words, some biblical words that end with L, E-L. We're going to be talking about a very important city, a very important establishment in the Bible, Bethel. Uh, El Shaddai. El means God. 
And so whenever you see El in the Bible, that, that is a, that's the shorthand for God. And so Israel, that last part is God. The first part, the Israel, the Israel part, or Israel, whatever, that, is, that translates is those that fight with God. Those that wrestle with God is actually the specific translation. Those that strive with God. And it does have a double meaning. It, the, one of the meanings is, is that the people of God, like they're wrestling with God. They're, they're, they're working things out with God. They're getting in the pit with Him. They're, they're, not, just, um, they're not just, you know, brushing off their problems. They're, they're taking it to the Lord and they're wrestling with God. Have you ever wrestled with God? Have you ever, have you ever said to God, God, I like this, but I don't like that. Let's talk. God, I know that you've got plans and promises for me, yet I don't feel them. I, I don't experience them. So, God, let's, let's wrestle this thing out. And so you have, and actually you are required, and it is a good thing. It is an extremely good thing to wrestle with God, because if you do not wrestle with God, you will not get blessed. We'll get there in a second. I'm going to say it again. If you don't wrestle with God, you will not be blessed. So wrestling with God is good. Striving with God is good. That's the other definition of, of Israel, those that wrestle or those that strive with God. In this world, you will strive. In this world, you will fight. In this world, you're going to have troubles. It's going to be hard. It's going to suck. And you can do it with God or without God. I choose to strive I choose to go through hardship. I choose to face the difficulties of this world with God. I want to strive with Him. I want to invite Him into my struggles. Israel, the people that strive and struggle with God. So you want to do this. Now let me make something abundantly clear. There is a huge difference between those that wrestle with God and those that fight God. All right? There's a, there's a distinction. When you wrestle with God, you're working things out with him, and your ultimate, your ultimate goal is to, is to receive his blessing. When you wrestle with God, you know that you're messing around with a holy and good God. When you fight with God, you are choosing God off, and you are blaming him for everything wrong in your life. Don't fight with God. <laughs> like, like, you just don't want to do that. You want to wrestle with God because you'll be blessed, but you don't want to fight God. People that fight God are bitter, they're angry, they're resentful. They will eventually take their disappointments in life and they'll project them on God, they'll project them on other people, they become toxic. So if you're fighting God, you're going to become a toxic person. But if you're wrestling with God, if you, if you choose to wrestle with God, you will be transformed. You will, you will get a brand new identity. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about this concept of wrestling with God so that our identity is transformed and changed. Identity is a big topic these days. Everybody's talking about it. 
what's a man, what's a woman, all these super complicated things. What do you want to identify as? And the scripture is very clear on the, the, the principle of biblical identity. We are to become Christ-like. We are to strive with God. We are to be his children. Anything else, any other priority uh, above that is by far substandard and subpar. We are children of God. We need to embrace our identity. Now, before... Okay, if you don't know... Um, the character we're talking about today is Jacob, and his name gets translated. His name gets transferred. He transforms into Israel. So Israel is a nation, but Israel, as we're going to find out today, is also a man, a man that used to be named Jacob. And if you remember from last week, Jacob was a twin. He was the younger of the twins. Isaac and Rachel, they had these twins, and it was their only kids, and they were very different boys. Esau comes out first, or Esau comes out first. And the Scriptures define Esau as Red. I'm not quite sure exactly why, but maybe he had red hair, and he's strong, and he was ruddy, and he was tough. And when he grows up, he becomes a hunter. He becomes a fighter. Uh, as far as cultural, ancient cultural values goes, he is God at all. He is the warrior class. And where Jacob is a little mama boy tent dweller. It's true. There was nothing appealing. Jacob's name literally translates into the usurper, the heel catcher, because when they're coming out of the womb, Jacob grabs Esau's heel and is like yanking on him. He's just so. And in, in fact, um, I don't. I have a I have a sister. She's 18 years younger than me. And you would think that we wouldn't fight. I mean, we're grown adults. We're grown human beings, individuals. We're like, like, we both have our life together somewhat. We're, and we will fight in the backseat of the car. It's like, you're on my side. No, you're on my side. It's just it's ridiculous. Have you, ever had, have you ever fought with your siblings? Moms, have you ever had... Has anybody ever had twins? No? Uh, okay. Is anybody a twin? Oh, Mark's a twin. Did you fight with your brother? Did you fight with your brother in the womb? <laughs> you were supposed to come out first. Okay. This is Genesis 25:22. But the children struggled together within her, kicking and shoving one another. If it is so that the Lord has heard our prayer, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, praying for an answer. And the Lord said to her, The founders of two nations are in your womb. Are you like, what a, what a thing to be responded to. Like, 
You take something to prayer, and it's like, oh, yeah, you have a nation in your womb. You got two nations in your womb. And the separation of the two nations has begun in your body. <laughs> I mean, they're not even born yet, and they're at odds with each other, the separation between the two. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's, wow, what, a, what an interesting statement there. So, Jacob is the younger, and coming out of the womb, it doesn't look like uh, the older brother will serve him. And, and Jacob's, again, Jacob's name translates into the heel catcher, the usurper, the liar. Um, he is described as being plain and unordinary, where uh, Esau gets these very powerful descriptions. Jacob doesn't, his descriptions aren't that, he's just like, he's like, what, he's a little, you know, he's a little guy, he's not that important. And we told the story last week of how Jacob and his mother devised a plan to steal his older brother's inheritance. His both financial inheritance and spiritual authority. He takes them both. The first act was uh, uh, paying him off with a bowl of food. I mean, poor Esau. He comes back from a long day of hunting. He's literally starving to death. And uh, his sneaky brother gives him a bowl of food, his favorite dish. He says, Just give me your birthright and I'll give you this bowl of food. I'm not, you know, like, did Esau disdain his own birthright? I don't think so. Was he tired and hungry, made a bad decision? Most likely. But I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it did happen. And so there was something symbolic that happened. But what was even worse was when Esau's out providing for the family, by the way. He's out there killing animals, dragging them home for the family. He's actually doing the work. And where Jacob is sitting in his tent playing Super Nintendo. <laughs> they take the plan to the next level. Isaac, the father, is going blind and losing life, and they put Esau's clothes on Jacob. They put Esau's mantle on Jacob, his hunting clothes that has a scent, has a smell on it. And then they, they uh, cover, they glue some hair on his arms. That's kind of gross. Um, maybe that's going to be your application this week, is that you're going to gl- glue some hair on your arms. <laughs> There's spiritual significance to everything in the Bible. All Scripture is God re- breathes, so let's glue some hair on your arms. So you glue some hair on his arms, and then he walks into the dark tent and says, <coughs> Hey, Dad, I'm Esau. And he's like, you don't sound like Esau. I was like, no, it's me. It's, it's, really, it's really me. I'm Esau. He's like, are you sure you're not Jacob? No, no I'm Esau. He's like, fill my arms. And so he tricks Dad, and there is an impartation of this Abrahamic blessing that gets transferred into the younger son by deception by weakness, by deceit, a lack of character. Like, this guy's got no character at all. Before it's almost all over, Esau comes home and catches it all in the act, and, he, and, and, and you and I would both be really mad if somebody stole our inheritance and stole our blessing, 
And, of course, Esau is, is like, as soon as dad dies, you die. That's the promise that's given. Isn't it kind of cool, huh? As soon as dad dies, I'm coming for you, and you're, I'm going to end you. And he, he meant it. Esau was going to kill him. And mom's like, oh, man, I think we made a mistake. I think we could have played this out a little differently. Your brother's going to kill you. And I know him. He is literally going to kill you. You better run. And Jacob runs. He got prayed over him. The spiritual blessing and the financial inheritance. But he leaves with nothing but his stick because he's on the run. He has absolutely nothing. And he goes to the north. Mom sends him up into the north, but to Syria or in that area to reconnect with old family members. He's like, you're gonna, you, you need to get out of here because you're going to die. And so this is where we're picking up the story. Jacob runs and he flees. And then God encounters him. This is Genesis 28. We're going to read 28 uh, verses 10 through 28. Uh, verses 10 through 22, excuse me. Now Jacob left Beersheba, never to see his mother again. Like, that's a big, harsh, you know, detachment right there. Never to see his mother again. Oh, man, I keep getting married. There we go. I don't want to be Okay, having technical difficulties again. I know, this is weird, isn't it? And they travel to Haran, and that's their ancestor home before they entered into Israel. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there overnight because the sun had set. Okay, so if you're following along with me in your Bibles, I want you to underline the sun had set. I know it seems like a non-important detail, but, it, but for today's purposes, it's a very important detail. The sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down there to sleep. He dreamed that there was a ladder, a stairway placed on the earth. So this is the title of today's sermon, The Stairway to Heaven. I tried to talk Pastor Larry McGarrity into playing that. <laughs> For those of you that are young, there was a, before there was Justin Bieber, Before there was Taylor Swift, there was real musicians. One was called, a band called Led Zeppelin. And I tried to weave in this song into this message. But unfortunately, it is not a biblical song. Yeah, I tried. I tried to push it. And for the record, I have introduced Led Zeppelin songs into other sermons. I couldn't make this one work. So you know the song, The Stairway to Heaven, right? Now, although it is not a biblical song, it does have biblical principles to it. So the, one of the main lines in the song is that she is buying the stairway to heaven. 
So what Robert Plant is literally talking about, he's not talking about, you know, some weird lady that buys the stairway to heaven. He is critiquing modern materialism. And what the song is literally saying is, you cannot buy your way into happiness, and you cannot buy your way into heaven. So it's actually, it actually has something good to say. It has a good, you know, spiritual principle to tell us. The material trappings of this world will not fulfill you, and they will definitely not get you to heaven. So that's, that's, the, that's the idea of the song. So hopefully I've done it justice. Um, but that title of that song and the title of movies, there's a movie called Jacob's Ladder, the horror movie in, I don't know, the 80s or whatever. I didn't ever saw it because I don't watch those things. Um, the way that we even use scientific terms to describe DNA, it's the Jacob's Ladder. The way that we, I mean, so it's, it, it, the culture has adopted that language of the stairway to heaven and of Jacob's Ladder. It's the same situation, which we're going to read right now, which is what's taking place in Jacob. So he's running. He's all alone. He's got absolutely nothing. And he falls into a dream. And there was a ladder, a stairway placed on the earth. And on top of it, it reached out towards heaven. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Going to and from heaven. Now, do um, you remember the old Bugs Bunny cartoons when somebody dies and then there's like an escalator and angels are going up and down and maybe you can get on the escalator and you can go up the escalator? Do you remember that? Do you know that as far as the scriptures go, I've got some, can we show some of my pictures? Okay, so these are the ideas that we get. Like there's a, there's a staircase and it's leading to heaven. Do you know that Looney Tunes got it right? Because of the way that the scriptures describe the ascending and descending of the angels is as if the ladders are actually moving. So this is the first escalator. So it's like there's almost something mechanical about this thing, right? Interesting. And behold, the Lord stood above and around him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father's father, and the God of Isaac. And I will give to you and your descendants the land of promise on which you are laying. So he's laying in this ground. It's in Israel. He's like, I'm going to give you this land which you're laying in. Your descendants shall be as countless as the dust of the earth. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't the first time God has said this to somebody. It has been said over and over and over again. And now Jacob gets to hear it for probably the first time. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you and your descendants. That should give you chills right there because it it's literally has happened. 
Um, so the Jewish people, they're less than 2% of the world's population. They hold 90% of the Nobel Peace Prizes. So that puts it into perspective for you. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep careful watch over you and guard you wherever you may go. I will bring you back to this promised land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep, and without doubt the Lord, without and said, without doubt, the Lord is in this place. And I did not realize it. I love this. You want me to underline that. The Lord is in this place, and I was too dull to realize it. I was too stressed out to realize it. I was too numb to see God. I was too consumed with my own problems to see God's blessings in and around me. Look, just because you don't feel God's presence in a place doesn't mean that God is not there. And that's usually the case. I've had this actually very same similar experience. Um, you know what gets you into and what, what opens up your eyes to God's presence is this simple obedience. I've, I've shared this encounter with the church before. I'll share it again. Some of you are new. Um, I grew up in a, in a church environment where it was just natural and normal to see miracles. It was just a part of my childhood experience. God was doing something powerful when I was young, and it marked me or messed me up. One of the two. Can't shake it. I can't shake some of the things that I've seen. I can't shake some of the experiences that I've had with God. And I've, I don't want to say I've seen a lot, but I've seen enough. I don't know how long ago. When did we have Randy Clark here? 2015. So 2015, uh, we invited Randy Clark to come. And a lot of pastors got together and we organized an event here in this building. And it was very powerful. And the, the setup to it, the pastor get together to it, Randy preached or just taught. He wasn't even preaching. He just taught a very simple um, lesson. I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't that important. <laughs> Frankly, it was boring. Okay? And, you know, my cynical mind is, been here, done this. Know this story. Know this scripture. You're not telling me anything new. This is great. Our people are going to love it, but not going to do anything for me. Like, let's just, let's just, okay, let's just work out all the details of the events. Let's get everything on the calendar. Who's doing what? And then Randy gets up there and says, all right, does anybody want to have an encounter with God? You just step across this line. And it was really that, it was really that simple. And, and dag nabbit. And he said, dang it. You know, and some other bad words. I need to have my wife come up here and be my surrogate swear. <laughs> I 
one of the deals that I made with God, one of the wrestling moments I've had with God, I just said, well, if there's anything that ever applies to me, any word ever given, any call ever you know, suggested that resonates with me in any way, I will respond. So if a 12-year-old girl says, hey, I think God wants to heal somebody that has a headache, and if I have a headache, I'm going to let that 12-year-old girl pray for me because that's obedience. So that's how I live my spiritual life. If there's anything that applies to me, I don't care how embarrassing it is, I don't care how uncomfortable or inconvenienced or whatever my rational mind is, you know, will excuse, I'm just obedient and I do it. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I, guess I want more of God in my life. I want to encounter God, yeah, well, yeah. So I'm trying to reason it out, like, this, how do I get out of this? Dang it, I can't get out of this. Because God and I have a contract. And I stepped across the line, and I thought I was going to die. Like, there was so much electricity going through my head, I couldn't stand it. I mean, if you saw it, you probably thought I was demon-possessed. It was terrifying. But it was also the, one of the it was an incredible experience at the, t- at the same time had what you call a religious experience. I encountered God from a simple act of obedience. Hmm? God was in the place, and I did not recognize it. Yeah? God is in the place, and you don't recognize it. God's here, we don't see it. We don't recognize it. God is at home with you, and you don't recognize it, you don't see it. God is even in your workplace, but you don't see it. You don't, he's there, but you don't recognize it. How do you recognize it? You respond with obedience. Okay. I didn't want to talk about that, but it just came, it came out. Dag nabbit. My grandmother once told me, I said, I said, gosh darn it once. My grandmother told me, it's like, why don't you just, Josh, why don't you just say what's in your heart and say, God damn it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's not let semantics fool our hearts, amen? So just because we can come up with some Christian swear words doesn't mean it, it, it yeah. Yeah. Woo! Don't say the queen mother of all swear words. That one. That one that way we... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I know, right? That's another sermon. (laughs) So Jacob got up early in the morning, verse 18, and he took the stone that he had had under his head and he set it up as a pillar. That is a monument to the vision in his dream. He makes a monument. He makes it a milestone. This is a big deal for him. In fact, this is the very first time that Jacob has any encounter with God in the Scriptures. We never see him praying, Oh God, please save me from my brother's wrath. He doesn't do that. He just runs. There's no, there's no dialogue. There's no encounter. There's no miracles in Jacob's life until this very moment, until the stairway to heaven. 
And he poured olive oil on the top of it to consecrate it. And he named that place Bethel. What does El mean? God. The house of God. The previous name of that city was called Lutz. It means almond tree. Then Jacob made a vow, a promise, a saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, I will and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. And if he grants that I may return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. So he's going into a personal covenant with God. He's doing business with God. The stone on which I have set up as a pillar, monument, memorial, will be God's house, a sacred place to me. And everything that you give me, I will give the tenth to you as an offering to signify my gratitude and independence upon you. All right. So, two things going on. One, write this down. Revelation. You're, okay, how do you guys find God? Here's the truth. You don't. God finds you. Revelation. God reveals himself to Jacob. Literally opens up heaven. It says it's a dream, but I think there's probably much more going on than just a dream. This is probably some type of an ecstatic outer body experience. Like he is seeing something so vivid, so real, he can feel it. There's a, I've actually been to Bethel. When I, back in college and I did archaeology, my professor took me there, and there's a cistern well there. A cistern well is a big giant hole that they, do, that they dig into the ground, and then they make a spiral ladder. Uh, Megan, I think I got that picture. Oh, she went to the bathroom. Do we have it? There it is. Okay, you gonna see it? So you just a spiral staircase that goes down into a well, and this is where you would draw your water, and they're deep. And I believe that I was actually at this site. It looks just like it. And so as I was, you know, as my professor is showing me around, and he says, he said, this is, this is, a, this is a, the cistern well. And he says, and quite possibly, this could be the stairway to heaven. This could be the Jacob's ladder. And he says, and so one way that, okay, and by the way, my professor was a Harvard man. So one way that we can interpret this, this story is that Jacob fell into this well, hit his head, rang his bell, and when he came through, he saw this stairway leading up into a bright sky. And I'm like, well, Dr. So-and-so, I'm not going to say his name online. <laughs> well, Dr. So-and-so, maybe it really happened. Maybe he had an encounter with God. Maybe it was real. It was. It was the revelation of God of heaven and earth coming together in a moment's notice. Angels ascending and descending on their spiritual escalators. And 
God up at the top and at the bottom. Did you guys catch that part? He's above and below talking and giving Jacob his destiny and his promises. We like to reason and rationalize out miracles in the Bible and even in our own lives. Um, That's called fighting God. Let's not do that. Let's wrestle with God. Okay, so um, remember how I opened up and I, and I said, you want, if you want to be blessed, you've got to wrestle with God, yeah? You've got to wrestle with him. Wrestling is good. It makes you stronger, makes you tougher, makes you faster, makes you spiritually mature when you decide to wrestle with God, But before, before you wrestle with God, you need a revelation. You can't wrestle God until he reveals himself to you first. So you need a, you need a spiritual experience. You need a Jacob's ladder. You need a stairway to heaven. You need, you need heaven opening up into your, into your everyday life. This is what you need in, in order before. Before you can wrestle with God, you need a revelation. Okay? And before you have the opportunity to get called onto the mat with God, you, you need to worship. This is what Jacob does. Jacob has this revelation and then immediately wakes up and sacrifices and worships God. Now, um, the modern American church is kind of freaking out these days because there's just not a whole lot of converts. And the only churches that are growing are the churches that are assimilating dying churches. Not a whole lot of evangelism going on these days. Not a whole lot of converts these days. Why is that? I, I don't know. We can let the, we can let the experts... But here's what I, do you, have a, do you have a heart for your lost friends and family members? Do you want to get them to come to the saving knowledge of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like, we all want that, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard sell, right? And sometimes when you have a faith conversation with somebody, you want to close the deal. You want to, you want to feel like you're doing your job. You want, you want to make Jesus happy that you shared your faith, and, and you should share your faith. But normally, what our mind wants to do is that we want to convince somebody to say the sinner's prayer. We're going to say the sinner's prayer, you say these magic words, and then you're going to be saved. I don't think that's true. People need a revelation. And so if you're talking to somebody, maybe you're drawn to somebody, and I'm going to ask you this question right now. You need to ask them a question. I'm going to ask you this question. Instead of trying to convince somebody through reason and logic to say the sinner's prayer, ask them this very simple question instead. Has God revealed himself to you? Because it is the Lord that calls people. We don't. 
It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And the only way that we can experience the kindness of God is if we have a revelation of his love. And so instead of trying to convince somebody with your apologetic skills and reasoning and Bible aptitude, ask them this very simple question. Did you have a revelation of God? That will get them thinking. All right, let me ask you. Has God revealed himself to you? Yeah? Has God revealed himself to you? Now, Point one, revelation. Point two, worship and sacrifice. So if you ask your friend whom you're trying to lead to the Lord, you want to lead to the Lord, you want to see their life transformed and changed, you want to see their identity come into what God wants it to be, you ask them, have you had a revelation of God? And if they said, there was that time in youth group where God showed up and revealed himself to me, like, and it was powerful and it was real and I believe it, like the experience was true, then your next question is, what was your response? Did you worship God in that moment? Did you give him a sacrifice? Did you set up a memorial stone and did you pour consecrating oil on it? And did you, did you give him a tenth of your percent? I'm not saying that's how you get saved, but that's just the proper response. That you put, you allow, you, you give God everything and you trust Him with everything. This is what Jacob does. And a lot of times, people have an experience or a revelation from God, but they don't respond properly. They don't respond with worship, they respond with more questions, or they respond with, God, give me another one. I do that. Give me another revelation. That was great. I want another one. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the carnal response. That's the carnal Christian response whenever you get a revelation. You just want another one. But the proper and the spiritually mature person will say, oh, I need to respond with sacrifice and worship. That's the proper response. Okay, so we want to, in order to wrestle with God, you need a revelation and you need to worship, and you need to sacrifice. Let's talk about wrestling with God. Now, Jacob goes into this encounter with God. Remember, the sun is setting, and the sun has set. Remember, I asked you to underline that little detail in your scriptures. From Bethel, he goes into... Laban's services. He starts working for his uncle, right? You, maybe you remember the story from Sunday school. He starts working for his uncle. Falls in love with Rachel. Gets suckered into marrying Leah. He uh, paints a bunch of goats and raises a bunch of animals. He goes from absolutely nothing to being blessed by a lot. He becomes a very wealthy, rich man. Um, Within seven years, he is, he ex- he's experienced the favor of God and the, and the favor of men. And, and it takes him another seven years to get the gal that he wants. We think that it's somewhere between 14 to 20 years of serving Laban. 
14 to 20 years of an uncle and a nephew screwing each other over because that's what they do. Like, they literally do this for 20 years. They play games for 20 years, and they screw each other over for 20 years. And when it's time for him to finally get away, after this long period of working hard, of working the land, of breeding animals, of actually listening to God on how to make money, that's what he does. He does it very, very well. After 20 years of this, he's now got two wives, two bonus girlfriends, and 11 kids. Bonus girlfriends. Yeah. Concubines. Uh, maidservants. Yeah, it's complicated. You thought your family was screwed up. You know, it's, just, it's super, super complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Rachel and Leah and the other two concubines and the kids, they put the, the dis and dysfunction. So he's finally leaving, and he's going to go back home. He needs to reconnect with his dad. He has got the success to prove it. Well, dad's gone, but he needs to go back to the promised land. He's got a ton of money, a ton of success. He's going to cross into the promised land. There's one major problem. You guys remember what the problem is? Esau. Esau is there. And if you remember, Esau wants to murder him, and rightfully so. I I would murder him. Don't like Jacob. Definitely didn't like him when he started off. And word gets out, and he's got these huge groups of people with him. And he's like, oh, this is bad. My brother's going to not just kill me, but he's going to kill all my descendants. He's going to kill my servants. He's going to take all my animals. It's going to be a bloodbath. And so Jacob, being the way that he is, he diversifies his portfolio. <laughs> and he splits his, his, his camp into two different camps. And he's just, because he's, he's a wise man. He's thinking wisely. He's like, all right, so Esau, if Esau kills me, then he's only going to murder you know, half of my family. And so the other half can get away. So that's how he's thinking. And he's setting it up, and he's sending out you know, information, and he's sending out gifts. He doesn't know what's going to take place. And even though he's got family and mercenaries around him, even though that he has support, This is what Jacob does. Genesis 32. Oh, and by the way, this is, uh, this is after, you know, 20 years of working for Uncle Laban. So Jacob was left alone. Interesting, huh? He left the promised land alone, and now he's choosing to enter the promised land alone. And a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. Underline daybreak. So when he left, the sun had set. 
And at the end of this episode with this man, sunlight is coming. And in between, you know, chapter 22 and now we're in chapter 33, there's a big giant story right in the middle, never in the scriptures between these two points. Was there any mention of sunset or sunrise? So Jacob, symbolically, is literally working and being faithful in in having kids and multiplying sheep and donkeys and goats and all this kind of stuff. He's doing this under a cloud, in in the dark, if you will. He hasn't He's had, his, he's had his religious experience. He's had revelation. He's, he's responded properly with worship, but there's still a darkness. He's still under darkness. Still hovers over him. Still plagues him. Still follows him around everywhere. He's gone 20 years living in darkness. You guys okay? When the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob... And the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob. So Jacob is wrestling this mysterious man. And the man, the man loses? You can't prevail against Jacob? The man loses. And so he touched his hip joint. And Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for daybreak is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you declare a blessing upon me. And he asked him, pay attention. He asked him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. The last time, Jacob asked for somebody's blessing. He lied. He put hair on his arms. When when the father asked, What is your name? Jacob responds, He lies. Why does God ask, What is your name? It's because God's trying to fix a broken identity. God is... God knows his name, but he's working on Jacob because he needs to change his identity. He needs to change his name. He needs to change the spirit of deception and lying and cheating and screwing other people over to get what you want. He's changing this in him in this moment. He's had the revelation. He's had the sacrifice. And now the transformation is coming. And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you want to know my name? And he declared a blessing of the covenant promises on Jacob there. And so Jacob named the place 
Peniel. What does El mean? God. The face of God. So he actually literally names this wrestling mat the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has not been snatched away. Now the sun rose on him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon of the hip socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh by the tendon of the hip. For I have seen God face to face, he says. So it's interesting. We go from this, because it starts off with a man. A man shows up, they begin to wrestle. Um, Jacob wins the wrestling match. How do you win a wrestling match with God? You win a wrestling match with God by losing your wrestling match with God. I know that seems counterintuitive, but he's, he's God says, okay, I am, I'm going to lose, but I'm also going to dislocate your hip with the touch of my finger. It's kind of cool, huh? Most scholars believe that this is a theophanies, meaning that this is no angel, this is no spirit, this is no prophet, but this is a very special, momentary incarnation of the person of Jesus. And so, and I hold that view myself, I believe that Jacob is wrestling with the Logos. He's wrestling with Jesus. And his name, the work that is done in the wrestling match, his name gets changed from liar, deceiver, usurper, heel grabber. His identity gets transformed from pasty white Nintendo playing tent dweller to one who wrestles with God. And I thought Esau was the tough one. It turns out Jacob is now the tough one. He, he is, he's tough enough to wrestle with God when most people can't. We want our revelations. We want our blessings. But very few people can actually do what Jacob does and wrestle with God. It requires a purging of our self-imposed character and identity in order to become a new person with a new character and a new identity. And this is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for me. He wants to take all of those negative character traits and he wants to transform you into an individual that knows that the only way that you get blessed is if you wrestle with God. And the only way that your identity comes into a spiritual name of God, Israel, the only way that you get a name like that is if you wrestle with God and do hard things with him and you choose to strive with him. And if you do, the sun rises. You come out of darkness you ever, uh, Lord, I've been walking with you for 20 years, and I still feel dark. 
right? I've been walking with you forever. I've, uh, I've had my revelation. I'd like another one. I've even sacrificed. I worship you, Lord. But I still feel like I'm in darkness. And the Lord would say, is this time to wrestle? Let's work these things out. Let's strive together. Instead of striving alone on your own, let's choose to strive with God. Twenty years of living under a shadow of lying and deception and false identity. And in one wrestling match, everything's transformed. Let me get the band to come on up to the front. This is John. You get your communion elements out too. This is John chapter 1, verse 43. Jesus is starting his ministry. This is New Testament. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're about 2,000 years old dead by now. I know. For the next day, Jesus decided to go into Galilee. He found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me as my disciple, accepting me as your master and teacher, and walking the same path of life that I walk. Discipleship. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Peter found Nathanael, and he told him, We have found the one Moses in which Moses talked about in the law, and also the prophets who wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, according to public scripture. Nathanael answered him. It's going to sound familiar. I think a bad guy once said this. Can anything good come of Nazareth? Okay, real fun point. Um, The nation that Esau uh, founded, the nation Esau founded is Edom, the Edomites, who, incidentally, um, that's where King Herod came from. King Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. Can anything could come of Nazareth? Philip replied, okay, this is what you guys need to see. Come and see. Anybody's asking questions about God, uh, again, uh, trash the apologetics, trash the sales pitch, trash the you know, sinner's prayer thing. Just say, hey, come and see. Have you had a revelation yet? No? Well, then come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Here is an Israelite, indeed a true descendant of Jacob, in whom there is no guile, nor deceit, nor duplicity. Jesus sees Nathanael. He sees them. He says, this is a good little Israelite, good little Jew boy. He is a descendant of Jacob, 
in whom there is no guile, no deceit, or duplicity. Uh, what were the characteristics of Jacob? Guile, deceit, duplicity. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is so smart, man. He's so witty. He says, you know, this is a descendant of Jacob, and all of the guile, all of the deceit, all of the sneakiness has been stripped out of their inheritance. Nathan said to Jesus, how did you know these things about me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. God sees us. We don't always see God. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of God, for you are the king of Israel. And Jesus replied, because I said this, because I said to you that I saw you under the tree, do you believe in me? You will see greater things. Then he said to him, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, pay attention, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the bridge between heaven and earth, Jacob's ladder the stairway to heaven. Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin didn't get it right, but you and I are going to get it right today. The stairway to heaven is Jesus. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is the great reconciler between us and God. We just read it. He says, you, you will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon the Son, upon, the, the, upon Jesus. He connects us to the spiritual world. He is the bridge. Jesus also calls himself the narrow door. There's only one way in, and it's through him. I was kind of disturbed. Or not disturbed, but like, that's kind of lame. I'd rewrite that differently if I was God. <laughs> like, like, what's up with Jesus wrestling with Jacob? Why didn't he just thrash him right out of the gate? <laughs> like, why? You know, they wrestled all night long. And yet... The angel chooses to lose and gives up. And then again, all it takes is a finger just to dislocate his hip. Like, what? I don't understand this guy. I don't understand this story. What's going on? Again, it's theophanies, right? Be ready for this. Jesus, or this angel, whatever this is, loses to Jacob. Again, that doesn't make sense. When you push this story into what it's really trying to communicate to us in the New Testament, in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it will make sense. Jesus chooses to lose so that we can win. Okay? Jesus allows Jacob, the the angel that, that he wrestles with, 
the angel allows Jacob to pin him to the mat because it is foreshadowing that we someday are going to pin Jesus to the cross. Jesus didn't have to face the cross. Jesus didn't have to lose, but he, cho he chose to lose so that we can win. And that's why this wrestling match is weird. That's why it now makes sense, because this angel of God, or this Theophanes, this Jesus, he chooses to lose so that Jacob can win. And this is the story of the cross. This is the message of the saving cross of Jesus Christ. He willingly lays down his life so that there can be open heavens in your life. Isn't that powerful? So, now, in review. Everybody needs a revelation. Have you had one yet? And if you haven't had a revelation, come and see. If you have had a revelation, what was your response? And are you brave enough to do step three, which is to wrestle with God for your complete transformation? You will lose, but you will also win. And you will walk with a limp for the rest of your life. I want to encourage you all to ask your friends and your family, did God reveal himself to you? Did God reveal himself? And if not, come and see. So now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you continue to put your trust in him. And may the hope of God overflow and empower you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit today. Know that God is in this place and declare that wherever you walk today. Monday morning, when you walk into work, you say, God is in this place and I did not see it. Around your dinner table, say, God is in this place and we did not recognize it. He is everywhere. He is with you. He is for you. He is not against you. And if you wrestle with him, he will bless you. Amen. Have an incredible week. Amen.